Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's April the 12th, 2022. Recently, we've been doing a lot of shows about power. Uh, last year, I had the um, Harvard and eclectic Harvard scholar Joseph Henrik on the show uh, talking about his new book, um, The Weirdest People in the World, uh, a book about how the West became psychologically peculiar and particularly prosperous. It's a long tradition of books about power in the West, about what makes the West the West. There's, of course, a much darker view of this uh, by critics of Western power, like uh, the British historian Kahindi Andrews, who was on the show uh, talking about his new book, The New Age of Empire, which roots uh, Western identity and the history of colonialism and racism. The issue of power as one well is also we have been occupying over the last few weeks. Moises Naim was on the show last month talking about his new book, uh, The Revenge of Power. So power and the West, we're bringing those two subjects together um, in our conversation today with a very distinguished scholar, Bruce Bueno de Mesquita. Uh, many of you will know him from his book about uh, a dictator's handbook. He has a new book out, The Invention of Power, Popes, Kings, and the Birth of the West. And um, Bruce is joining us from New York today. Bruce, welcome. Um, you have a very unusual take on the origins of Western power. But before we begin, perhaps you might define what you mean by power. Well, I mean by power uh, in a very conventional sense, the ability to make other people do things they don't otherwise want to do. Uh, and, and I mean by uh, Western exceptionalism or the Western ability to exert power, uh, it's unusually great prosperity, a tolerance for different ideas, and a democratic free governance. Uh, these are characteristics that are unusual in the world, but are typical of uh, Western societies. So your book, The Invention of Power, is not really a, about the invention of actual power. Power has always existed between human beings. It's the invention of a Western kind of power. In your view, are you a, a Hobbesian or a Rousseau scholar in the sense that uh, power, is it rooted anthropologically or is it something that we invented? Uh, well, uh, power is uh, something uh, that we invented, I suppose, uh, but I, I would neither put myself in Hobbes's camp nor Rousseau's, especially since uh, the opening chapter of The Dictator's Handbook, uh, another book I've, I've written, uh, as you mentioned, uh, makes the point <laughs> that uh, Hobbes, uh, Hobbes and Rousseau had things wrong. And is there a, a tradition, uh, an alternative to Hobbes and, and Rousseau that you fit yourself into? David Graeber, his posthumous uh, book, new book, uh, creates an alternative, a kind of an anarchist tradition in terms of trying to figure out power. Is there a, a tradition you fit yourself into? 
Well, I suppose if I had to put myself into an existing tradition, it would be Machiavellian. Uh, Machiavelli, the Machiavelli of the discourses, more so than Machiavelli uh, of the prince. Uh, but in either case, Machiavelli had, uh, was a lot closer, in my view, to how the world works uh, than many other uh, political theorists of that approximate time. So let's go back to the invention of power, Bruce. Um, Popes, kings, and the birth of the West. You have a, a particularly intriguing take on, um, on I guess it's uh, 12th century history. It's interesting that um, last month I also had Charles Spencer, the British historian, also happens to be the uncle of the future King of England. He has a, a new book out called... Um, the White Ship, Conquest, Anarchy, and the Wrecking of Henry I's Dream, which talks about the importance, in his view, at least in terms of modern English history, of the sinking of the White Ship in 1120. But for you, there are other events of the 12th century which have more significant universal significance. What happened in the 12th century that, in your view, is so important? Well, what happened was that uh, the struggle between the Catholic Church and the principal uh, rulers in Europe, uh, the investiture struggle, got resolved by a series of essentially treaties. We can call them concordats. That's what they were called. Uh, in 1107, uh, the Pope signed concordats with the kings of England and of France, and uh, in 1122 signed the Concordat of Worms, uh, which resolved the investiture struggle, that is the appointment of bishops uh, between the Holy Roman Emperor and uh, the church. The three agreements were very similar in, in, in the terms that they elaborated. And uh, what I attempt to prove in the invention of power is that these concordats fundamentally changed the political incentives uh, in Europe and in parts of Europe, and those political incentives translated gradually into what we think of uh, as Western exceptionalism, an exceptionalism that has nothing to do with superior people, nothing to do with superior culture, nothing to do with superior religion or any of the other many obnoxious interpretations of it, but simply had to do with changed incentives over the production of wealth uh, and the production of political clout, political power. Bruce, what do you make of uh, Joe Henrich's thesis on uh, the foundations of modernity lying in changes in the law when it came to marriage of, um, of, of, of the Christian elite? Is there anything in that or is he barking up the wrong tree to put it crudely? Well, I don't want to say there's nothing in it, but there's nearly not as much as, in my view, as he believes there is. And I say that for several reasons. Uh, marriage relations certainly uh, affected power uh, distributions and developments. On the other hand, we have to explain why the same set of marriage relations instituted across the Catholic Church uh, led Northern Europe to become prosperous and Southern Europe to become much less prosperous. Uh, why uh, Northern Europe 
began to form parliaments ahead of Southern Europe and so forth. His account simply doesn't explain that variation within Europe across space. So we'll have to get Joe on the show. You can do a debate. You're, of course, going up against some pretty heavy hitting theorists, um, uh, Bruce, uh, particularly um, the great uh, Max Weber, the author of The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, which still remains perhaps the most persuasive uh, theory about how the West became the West and capitalism became capitalism. What do you make of Weber's theory of um, Protestantism and Lutherism in the context of your theory? Is he, again, not understanding the nature of modernity? Uh, Weber had it wrong, understandably, because the data weren't available when he was writing in the very early 1900s. So he was mostly working on ideas and speculation. Um, So one of the important facts that is uncovered in my book is that what we, what is today Protestant Europe uh, was more prosperous than what is today Catholic Europe before Martin Luther uh, by quite a bit. So uh, what is today Protestant Europe became wealthy without Protestantism. Uh, Quite the contrary uh, to Weber, uh, in my thesis, I demonstrate, uh, both theoretically with game theory and and with evidence, that uh, the Protestant Reformation is a consequence of the third theoretical outcome, result, of the Concordat of Worms. Breaking from the church was an inevitable result of the Concordat once a set of dioceses became sufficiently wealthy. So uh, Max Weber uh, began his his investigation without the benefit of knowing that capitalism existed before the Protestant Reformation, without knowing what the wealth conditions were uh, in Germany, for example, before the Protestant Reformation. So, you know, clever theorist, but he had it wrong. You use the D word, Bruce, data. You're famous because you're one of the leading game theorists, very much borrowing um, the ideas of of the great uh, John von Neumann to develop game theory. How um, How does your argument in the invention of power, how does it borrow from game theory? And what data is available to you in the invention of power that wasn't available to previous generations of scholars? Well, let me illustrate what the game structure looks like. It's really very easy to explain. What we're thinking about is how people respond strategically to improve their own interests. So what the Concordat said is that the church would nominate bishops and the relevant king or secular ruler would get to say, yes, I agree to this person, or no, I, I, I veto that person. If the secular ruler said yes, then the bishop would be installed and everybody would be fine. Uh, if the uh, Holy Roman Emperor, for example, said, no, this person's not acceptable to me, uh, as uh, King John of England uh, said when he launched a tremendous struggle with, uh, the, with Pope Innocent III, If the king said no, then under the terms of the concordat, 
the income that would have gone to the church from the diocese instead went to the king. That was a change that uh, from the policy that had been in place at least since 451. So it was a huge change. What it meant was that if a diocese were poor, remembering the, the church could punish people for saying no. So if the diocese were poor, it wasn't worth the king's while to reject a bishop nominee, even though he may not have liked the nominee. So the Pope or the church would have nominated somebody expected to be loyal to them, and the king would have said yes. If the diocese were moderately wealthy, then there was an opportunity to trade political leverage for money. So if the Pope or the church nominated somebody that the church liked, uh, and the money was good enough taking costs of punishment into account, then the king would say no. But if the Pope or the church decided to nominate instead somebody that was to the liking of the king, then the church would get the money, that was a plus for them, and, and they would get a bishop, and the king would get more political leverage because now the bishop was in the king's pocket, uh, loyal to the king more so than to the church. If the diocese were really wealthy, or lots of dioceses under the king were really wealthy, then the king didn't have to trade money for political power. He could say, nope, you know, I, I don't really care who the bishop is. I'm going to keep the money, and I'm going to do whatever I want on policy, meaning it was breaking with the church. And that's what happened in France in 1309 with the Avignon papacy, when the French king decided he would pick the Pope. And uh, later with the Protestant Reformation, no need to worry about what, what the church wants. We'll just make our own church. So there, there are three outcomes possible under the Concordat. Well, to, to be fair um, to, 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 to the players in, in this game, um, Bruce, none of them knew what they were doing. Weber, of course, his understanding of the Protestant uh, Reformation was very much, I think, designed to answer the Marxists who saw history in terms of intentionality. He saw history in unintentional terms. I'm assuming you also see it in unintentional terms. None of well, these popes knew what they were doing. None of them had any understanding of history. They were all working within the, far, the rather narrow parochial confines of the 12th century. Well, of course, they were working within the confines of their own time. Uh, they knew what they were doing in the sense that they were doing what was good for them at the moment. So I'm certainly not trying to fault Weber. Uh, he was just you know, writing at a time when Game theory wasn't available to him, and neither were the, the data that are available to me. The, the point, however, is uh, what the data show is that on a dime, the selection of people to be bishops changed dramatically once the Concordat was signed compared to the same dioceses before it was signed or compared to other dioceses in kingdoms that didn't sign on. You got a completely different profile of who bishops were, and that profile depended statistically uh, on how wealthy the diocese was. Uh, so in, in the book, I, meant, I measure wealth in terms of whether dioceses were on 
uh, major trade routes or not. More recently, in a technical paper with uh, my son, who's a professor at the University of Chicago, we uh, a data set just came out in September uh, that was a detailed data set on uh, urban settlements of as little as 1,000 people each. And again, it's in the larger, wealthier urban settlements across Europe uh, that we see the emergence of bishops who are uh, estimated to be secular leaning, that is lay leaning rather than religiously leaning when they are uh, nominated. So uh, whether they knew what they were doing or not, they responded to the changed incentives of the concordats immediately after signing the concordats. This debate is never going to get settled, Bruce. You know that as well as anyone. It's an ongoing one. It began, I don't know, certainly began before Weber with Marx, perhaps even before Marx with Hobbes. Um, for a, a, a late 21st century version of Bruce Bueno de Mosquito, you suggested that Weber was missing your data set. He was missing game theory. What do you think you might be missing well, I'm missing better measures of the variables that uh, the game theory reasoning I have used uh, would urge me to be able to measure. I would like to be able to measure how, how religious uh, each king was in the sense of how sensitive was the king to the threat of being excommunicated or of having uh, his domain or part of his domain interdicted by the church. I can only approximate those things roughly. I would like to be able to measure economic change uh, much more in a much more nuanced way than a simple dichotomy of a diocese is wealthy or is not wealthy. Uh, but I, I think, uh, unlike many predecessors who have theorized about this subject, uh, the fact that I have uh, taken the treaties of the day, the Concordat of Worms, Paris, and London, uh, and converted them quite carefully into their logical implications means I'm not so much expressing an opinion as I am deriving the results logically from what the relevant popes and kings signed, what the exact terms were of what they agreed to. And I think that gives my thesis a great leg up because it's grounded in logic uh, and not picking a fact out of a hat and saying, ah, this is the critical event. It's showing logically. So why we're at the event. end of history in theoretical terms when it comes to game theory. It's this, this, this is the tool that, that, that ends tools. This is the tool of all tools. Well, I don't want to quite say that. Well, um, you can if you want on my show. Well, I'm well, I, happy I don't, I don't do. quite want to because I can see arenas in which game theory can be made a much deeper theory than it is now. Uh, but it's pretty deep now. It's it, Over the last 50 years, it has made enormous strides. Uh, still, uh, it would be great if um, evolutionary game theory were... Uh, less random walk and a more sophisticated analytic structure, um, and it will eventually be so. Uh, but game theory is the natural uh, language of social phenomena because people are strategic. They're trying to do what's good for themselves, knowing that there are people competing with them, other people who have different goals in mind. 
Game theory is the, is the mathematical language we have to address that problem. So it's, it's the natural language of social science. We are talking with Bruno, uh, not Bruno, Bruce Buena de Mosquita, um, the author of the new book, The Invention of Power, Popes, Kings and the Birth of the West. Very interesting, intriguing thesis about the, the origins of Western power and the division uh, between church and state in Western history, which defines it. Um, I, I want to take a short break now, uh, Bruce, and after it, I, I, I want to talk more broadly about game theory and what it tells us about the world today, particularly, for better or worse, Vladimir Putin's world. So we'll be back with Bruce Bueno de Mosquita in about 60 seconds. Don't leave us, anyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We're back with Bruce Bueno de Mosquita, the author of The Invention of Power, a very intriguing new book about the origins of Western power. Many of you will also be familiar with uh, his hugely controversial best-selling book from 2012, The Dictator's Handbook, Why Bad Behavior is Almost Always Good Politics. Um, he positioned himself in the first half of this show um, in the context of uh, Machiavelli. Uh, Bruce, what do you make of Putin's behavior in the context of your theory? Is he conforming to the rules that you as a game theorist lay out in your work? Yeah, indeed he is. Um, and, and indeed, I, I laid out, the, and my co-author, Alistair Smith, laid out the prospects of this uh, sort of behavior by Putin um, in a series of papers we did in uh, 2013 and 14. Right, it's called the, lo the Logic of Political Survival. It's uh, in the MIT Press. Yes, that's 2003. 
Uh, Putin is behaving in a perfectly rational way. Uh, the, the argument in the dictator's handbook, by the way, there is a new expanded second edition that comes out this, uh, I believe, next week, uh, maybe out now. Um, we, we make the case that what leaders care foremost about is staying in power. Now, that doesn't seem very controversial. We argue that you can divide society into leaders, essential supporters, the people who support an incumbent has to have to stay in power, people who have a nominal say in choosing leadership, and everybody else. When a leader depends on tens of millions of people, as in a large democracy, uh, then they have to produce efficient public policy and they get kicked out of office quickly because it's an arms race over ideas. But when a leader depends on very few people to stay in power, as Vladimir Putin does, uh, then policy is about rewarding them with private goods, with special contracts, corruption opportunities, and so forth. It's not about doing what's good for society. And we are seeing at the moment, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, is doing the things that a, a leader of a small coalition does. Uh, the reason his military has so far been so ineffective in, in the view of the way Alistair Smith and I think about the world is that whereas Russia is the, the fourth largest defense budget in the world, much of that money goes to lining the pockets of generals and uh, other senior political leaders instead of going to training soldiers and buying arms. Uh, we see the same thing, by the way, Saudi Arabia is the third largest defense budget in the world, and they're unable to be successful in a war against Yemen, because again, a lot of the money is going to lining the pockets of generals and so forth, instead of uh, good training and uh, the things that make a military successful. Uh, Putin is now uh, having a hard time, so uh, he has the appropriate strategic response to that. He is less likely to face a mass uprising, though that is a possibility, than he is to, to face a coup because so much of the money that was going to his cronies has been cut off. So what is he doing? He's purging his cronies, making it a smaller set where with, fewer, uh, with, with less money, he can take better care of them. Uh, and have more discretionary money for his own use. We might want to notice that one of uh, the things that's unusual about the war in Ukraine is there wasn't a massive change in the defense budget in Russia. He's essentially paying for much of this war effort out of his discretionary money, the money he doesn't have to spend to keep his coalition loyal. He's behaving exactly as we would expect, and after all, he has succeeded in remaining in power for 22 years, something every American president uh, since George Washington may have dreamt of, but has never come close to achieving. Um, Bruce, your, your book, The Invention of Power, Popes, Kings and the Birth of the West, is about the West, not the East, and it roots the origins of the West in the Concord of Worms in 11. 22. There's an ongoing debate, of course, about whether or not Russia is capable of being a democracy. What does your book, The Invention of Power, tell us about the potential for a division between church and state or freedom and democracy 
in a country like Russia or for that matter, China, which didn't experience the concordat of worms in 1122? So uh, the thesis in the book, um, put more broadly, is that one of the important elements that the concordat of worms set into motion was the separation of church power and state power. Uh, and in conjunction with that, uh, it set into motion an orderly regulated competition between the interests of the two huge powers of Europe of the 12th century, the Holy Roman Empire uh, and uh, the, the Catholic Church. Today, among the lessons that can be learned uh, is that the separation of church and state is in a competitive environment is a, is a critical element to entrepreneurship, ideas, and freedom. Uh, under Vladimir Putin, uh, Russia has been moving increasingly into the orbit of the Orthodox Church. So that's a move in the wrong direction. Uh, in the case of uh, China, which I'm certainly not an expert on either Russia or China, but in the, in, in the case of China, historically, uh, before the communist revolution, uh, the emperor was the head of religion. So again, there was no separation. Today, there is separation, but church is essentially uh, quashed to the extent that the secular authorities uh, can successfully do that. The religion uh, is instead the, the party. Um, and uh, that too uh, stifles entrepreneurship uh, and inventiveness and uh, political freedom. But the, one of the things the Concordat did with regard to freedom is it incentivized kings to stimulate economic growth. Before the Concordat, there were basically two ways to get richer, conquer your neighbors or marry uh, into the royal family of, a, of another state where you would get a big dowry. Uh, what the Concordat said was, well, you can also gain power by becoming sufficiently rich so that you can control the bishops who will help to set policy in your domain. Now, how do you get to be richer in that world? Well, you needed to find a way to get people to be more productive. You could try to raise taxes, but you were already taxing it at the efficient level, so you were likely to stimulate rebellion by raising taxes. People did try that. They did stimulate rebellion. The alternative was to give people some rights in exchange for their effort on, on the king's behalf or the country's behalf uh, to make it wealthier. Uh, and so parliaments were created, parliaments where there were vetoes on taxation and on spending. Uh, and that happened in places that had signed on to the concordats and were rich. It essentially didn't happen in the rest of Europe. And that transformed Europe and that sort of political competition for uh, economic uh, growth and entrepreneurship uh, could help all around the world where both. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to turn this into, and you, you acknowledge you're not an expert on China. I don't want to turn this into a conversation about China, but China does encourage entrepreneurship and innovation and at the same time seems increasingly oh. authoritarian. Uh, Bruce, what can well, we do? If you don't mind, I, I want to modify what you just said. It's not quite right. Um, it was right for 40 years, post Deng Xiaoping, 
But as prosperity began to grow in China, it created competition for political authority over how that money was used. We're seeing that right now, literally today, uh, where the tech industry in China is pushing back against uh, Xi Jinping's reforms. And Xi is having to choose between expanding his political authority by controlling inventiveness or allowing the inventiveness to keep rebellion down, which might jeopardize his political power. So what should we do in the West, Bruce, in terms of um, encouraging this church-state division in Russia and China, particularly in China, but also obviously in the near term in Putin's Russia? What can we do? Is it sanctions? Is it war? Is it simply throwing up our hands and giving up and accepting that their systems are different? Well, very few polities uh, change through external pressure. There are examples, but very few. Most societies change through internal pressure. So one of the ways that we can influence the creation of that internal pressure is by making the points we just made, uh, writing books like The Invention of Power and The Dictator's Handbook that point the way to what leads to success and what doesn't lead to success, not based on opinions or, or personal views, but based on logic and evidence. So that as people get exposed to those ideas, they can think through how do those ideas translate into my setting, which they will know infinitely better than I will know in the context of Russia or, or of China. Basically, Competition works everywhere. Where there is intense competition over ideas uh, and over products, uh, you, you get economic growth, you get expansion, you get uh, tolerance. Uh, and those are the things that made the West successful. How, so how, are... Bruce, how would you ex explain then Donald Trump and the Trumpian wing of the Republican Party, which seems bent on collapsing the church-state division in American democracy. Yeah, so uh, the new chapter of the second edition of the Dictator's Handbook, Is Democracy Fragile?, takes on exactly that, that puzzle. By the way, it, it, it concludes that uh, democracy is not fragile, a book that is otherwise very pessimistic about the world, quite optimistic on that, for good, good logical and empirical reasons. So you will get bumps in the road. It's not a, you know, Europe didn't have a smooth sailing. It was Adolf Hitler too. Uh, and Mussolini, you didn't have a smooth sailing to, to tolerance and prosperity. Um, there'll be bumps in the road. The, the thing is that when you have a competitive environment, uh, you have an environment that corrects, self-corrects the bumps in the road. In the case of uh, societies that depend on very large winning coalitions, if I may, if, if, the, the shape of my fingers exactly illustrates the mathematical function of interest. So if we're down here, we, we depend on a small coalition, and as we move horizontally, we're depending on a bigger coalition. And the vertical axis is how well off are coalition members. The critical result is that when the coalition is tiny, the coalition members are really well off. They're getting lots of of opportunities to steal money and so forth. They're getting very rich. But if you project across, you see 
that once the coalition is really large, once at this cut point, the welfare only increases by expanding the coalition. Down in here, you can increase or decrease welfare by making the coalition bigger or smaller. You get coups and revolutions. But out past this point, the only way to make people better off is to make the government more accountable. So Donald Trump's problem was he wanted to make it less accountable. He wanted a smaller group to be uh, the key players. And the difficulty is that that was against the interests of lots of people, all people up in here who are going to be benefiting and the people here who would be hurt by making it smaller. And so the consequence was he lost his chance at re-election because the voters and some of his coalition who defected from him, they were with him in 2016 and not in 2020, decided he was not good for their interests. So it's a self-correcting system once it's gotten far enough out. Uh, and the United States is far enough out. We'll have to get you back on, Bruce, to, to talk about the, the new the new version of the book. Finally, I, I just wanted to ask you an Iran question. You have a, a very popular speech on, um, on Iran predicting its future. How does the future of Iran um, fit in? I mean, obviously, Iranian history is very different from... Um, the European history you talk about in the invention of power. How can Iran change? So the prediction about Iran back in 2009 was that they would not build a nuclear weapon, which so far they have not built, uh, although they're becoming more likely to build one now. It's a long time ago. Uh, that was another game theory model that I developed that predicts behavior. Uh, so Iran is a very good example of the sort of governance that we've been talking about. Uh, you know, the Catholic Church depends on a very small coalition to sustain its power. The uh, Russian government depends on a very small group. The Chinese, even a much smaller group. And Iran depends on a small group. When you depend on a small group to keep you in power, the way you stay in power is the way the Iranian government stays in power. You engage in corrupt behavior that enriches the loyalists, and you because they can get rich, they are willing to go out and beat the heads of people who oppose the regime, suppressing opposition. Uh, so it's a government that sustains a small clique in power at the expense of the welfare of, of the many. Um, that's what authoritarian governments are. I, I can't resist asking this question, Bruce. I know uh, you've been asked it a million times before. You talk about narrow clicks. I think if Kehinde Andrews was on the show um, with his new book, The New Age of Empire, he might argue that Western powers themselves were narrow elites of white men colonizing the world for their own interest, very much post the concordat of, of worms, perhaps even up until today. How would you respond to that tradition, that Kehinde Andrews uh, colonial way of thinking about the West and history? So it's a long conversation, but let me give you a quick fix on it. Uh, what the sort of game theory reasoning that uh, is used in the invention of power and in uh, the dictator's handbook and the logical political survival uh, lays out is that when you depend on a large coalition, you're a democratic leader, you do what's good for your supporters. They're just a very large number of people, so it's policy-oriented. 
That doesn't mean that you do what's good for people elsewhere in the world. They are not your voters. They are not your constituents. And so the, the claim is not that democracy is on every dimension uh, an inherently wonderful uh, system for the world. It is a wonderful system to live under because although it has its flaws, it has racism and so forth, um, if you look at where are the parts of the world where people are most prosperous, where people are best educated, where people have longest life expectancies, you inevitably find you're looking overwhelmingly at democracies. And when you look at people who live in, in misery and squalor and have short lives and die of easily cured diseases, you're looking at authoritarian governments. So it's the claim is not that democracies do good outside the democracy, quite the contrary. Um, in, in quite a bit of the research that Alistair Smith and I have done, we've looked, for example, at the harm that foreign aid does to the, to the people in recipient countries, because it's not aimed at making them better off. It's aimed at making the voters at home who support the incumbent better off. Uh, and so the same with colonialism. Colonialism uh, was a horrible policy. Um, I would note, by the way, that colonialism largely disappeared as more countries became more democratic, as they moved up this curve to the higher ends of it, uh, where it became an inefficient uh, policy. But there's no claim here that uh, democracy is good for people who are not living under it. Uh, the, the, the claim is it's, it, the job of a democratic leader is to do what his or her constituents want at home because his or her job is to is to remain in power for their party to remain in power. It's good stuff from uh, one of the world's leading game theorists, Bruce Bueno de Mosquito, his new book, The Invention of Power, Popes, Kings, and the Birth of the West, uses in a very innovative, original way uh, 12th century history to explain the birth of Western power. Uh, the book is just out. Congratulations, Bruce, on the book. Uh, in in mid-April um, 2022, what else should people be reading in addition to the invention of power and the um, the new edition of Dictator's Handbook? Well, I personally uh, have been, uh, on, on the fiction side, been reading uh, Lincoln Highway, a beautifully written book. Um, and uh, I've been reading Pearlstein, uh, Nixon Land, and uh, yeah, he was that, on the show actually. Rick oh, Pearlstein, great! A couple of years uh, ago, uh, the Barry Goldwater volume before that. I, I'm old enough to remember Barry Goldwater running for president, and uh, I have to say, Pearlstein has done a remarkable job of connecting the dots and helping us to see how what was going on in the Republican Party. Uh, starting in the Barry Goldwater period in the, uh, in the 1960s, uh, produced or helped to produce Donald Trump and what I would view as the miseries that, that Donald Trump attempted to inflict uh, on our government and us as a society. Uh, so they're, they're very good reads, and he, he also writes really well. And on April the 12th, 2022, Bruce Buena de Mosquito, author of The Invention of Power, Dictator's Handbook, many other important books about power in the contemporary world. Where is power today, uh, Bruce? Where does it lie? Who's running the world? 
Uh, we the people are running the world um, because the, the United States is clearly the most powerful country in the world. And it's a country whose leadership uh, depends on a very large number of voters. So relatively low corruption and high public goods production. Our leaders try to do what they believe their voters want. That's their way to get reelected. And, and since it's the most powerful country in the world, that seems to me to make us the most powerful people in the world. So it's you and me.